Spotlights is a series of online events and publications focusing on a particular group of victims and survivors who are often hidden from services. This podcast episode forms part of our spotlight on responding to lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans plus people experiencing domestic abuse. In it, my colleague Colette talks with Berkeley Wilde, the founder and director of the Diversity Trust, a community interest company that aims to influence social change to create a fairer and safer society. Berkeley is also a trustee of CVS South Gloucestershire and of LGBT Bristol, an organisation he founded 24 years ago and a Stonewall education role model. In this podcast, Berkeley talks about how the Diversity Trust collaborated with Bristol-based NextLink Domestic Abuse Service in a year-long project to improve access to domestic abuse services in the West of England for LGBT communities, and touches upon how his own lived experience of domestic abuse has made the issue important to him. Barclay, welcome to our Spotlights podcast series. Thank you for agreeing to do this podcast with me. So you are from an organisation called the Diversity Trust. Could you tell us a bit about what they do? Okay, so we are a community interest company, which is um, a type of social enterprise. And our work is around equality, diversity and inclusion, those core themes. And they are... um, The kind of uh, work that we would be involved in would be predominantly delivering training to frontline staff and to various organisations that would literally go from very small non-governmental organisations, charities, through the two large multinational corporations. So we have a really wide range of clients. And most oftentimes, the clients that are coming to us are seeking support around things like the Equality Act and Equality Duty and making sure that they're compliant, but also maybe going a little bit further in terms of thinking about how they can celebrate and embrace diversity better, particularly within the workforce, but also about you know delivering to customers and to clients and service users. So that's the core of our work. And then the other flip side of that is in, in carrying out research, which we will do often community-based research, but also we have arrangements and and partnerships with academics and universities around the region. And most of our work, although we do deliver training UK-wide, most of our work is in the sort of west of England, west country area. Okay, and so you um, partnered with an organisation called NextLink, who are based in Bristol, I believe. That's correct, yeah. 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 Um, And they're a domestic abuse organisation. You collaborated with them over the course of a year, uh, on a particular project which you've come to talk about today so could you say a bit about that project and how you got involved? Okay so what happened was we'd um, been working with Safer Bristol Partnership and Bristol City Council for a, a while for a number of years initially actually through substance misuse and hate crime and other factors and I um, had felt quite passionate about um, the subject of domestic violence and abuse as a survivor myself. And I'd been working to develop some training with a a co-trainer whose um, background was in DV. They were actually a commissioner locally and had retired. And so they were really interested um, in, in sort of progressing some training. And We'd then been approached by uh, Safer Bristol Partnership and by colleagues at Bristol City Council to uh, form a partnership with NextLink, who are the main provider in the Bristol area. And so they um, arranged a meeting for us and we then put in a a tendering bid, an expression of interest uh, to the Police and Crime Commissioner's office, so to Sue Mount Stephen's office. And that process 
took a few months to go through, but we were eventually successful in our application mm -hmm. to secure some funding. And the funding was for um, a year, for a 12-month period, and it was to deliver, to de design and deliver some bespoke training for frontline mainly domestic violence uh, specialists, but um, it did become wider in terms of the audience that we reached. And the other uh, part of the process was to look at um, some policy reviews, so how to help uh, Nextlink particularly in it updating its policies. Mm -hmm. We also work with Survive um, locally as well, they're based in South Gloucestershire. And then, as well as that, to inform the policy development and to inform the, the training, we did a, a program of some research. So we did ran some focus groups, and we did two different types of focus groups. So we ran focus groups with providers, so with the specialist DV okay. support workers, but also we did some research with actual LGBT communities and with survivors, particularly of, of domestic violence. And we ran a few focus groups, and one of those was... Um, within Nextlink itself and actually was mainly drawn from service users so that was mm -hmm. interesting and then we also tried to open them up as well to to engage a little bit more with communities that was actually really difficult even though we were offering an incentive it was really hard to get people to come forward and take part so right. we had small num smaller numbers so we had larger numbers in the providers groups yeah. and larger numbers in the service users groups but very small numbers in the in the community groups. Yeah, and that's interesting because what we see a lot uh, in the in the data is that the uh, numbers of LGBT people coming to specialist domestic abuse services is very small compared to what we know the number is more likely to be of, of people experiencing domestic uh, abuse. Something else that we tend to see actually is that it's um, more so bisexual women seem to be represented in domestic abuse service intake. Um, uh, and in particular, there's a lack of uh, trans uh, men and women coming to the attention of those specialist services. So it's an interesting question about where those people are going for support, if anywhere, anywhere at all. I think so. And certainly I know from anecdote, but also from some research that, that's been published, that LGBT communities generally tend to help seek informally so they will go to friends and family if that's an option mm -hmm. and for many trans uh, clients of, uh, that we've worked with and supported over the years that's really reduced because obviously you know for many trans people you know that can mean isolation from family and you know it's really difficult then to get support because if you're not seeking support from agencies because Mainly, people fear discrimination. That's sure. that's the reality. Um, you know, we, we've got some really hard-based evidence around access to hate crime services, for example, yeah. which is very clear about that. Um, and then, therefore, if people are only able to help uh, seek internally, sort of informally, it means that it's really difficult for people to actually get the special support that they really do need. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, people's lives are also very complex. You know, when you add in play factors such as mental health concerns, for mm. example, it becomes and, and addictions. It becomes incredibly difficult. You know, for people that are experiencing domestic violence as another intersection you know yeah. in, their, in their lives so it it kind of um suggests then that it's it's not enough for domestic abuse services to say well we we are open to all um we're we're equal opportunities in terms of our accessibility you know we welcome uh all, all different people in our service that that is just not going to be enough in terms of really reaching uh, people when there are all these additional barriers? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that analogy is one I use in my training all the time. You know, historically, people's understanding of equality particularly was exactly that, that, you know, we welcome everyone, we open our doors, 
But the problem is that the barrier is that not everyone will come through your door and you will need to make uh, adjustments and you will need to think differently in terms of reaching into communities. And LGBTQ communities is one of those communities that perhaps historically has less, um, you, you know, less trust really in, in services because of the historic treatment, because of, you know, criminalization, decriminalization. And therefore it's about thinking, what can we do? DV is an interesting one, particularly because in terms of the number of men that we that we spoke to, they said, well, domestic violence charities are for women. They're not for men. Right. And that was another barrier, um, particularly for gay men. And I yeah. think you're absolutely right. Our, our experience, certainly, if we looked at the monitoring, would be that, you know, bisexual women were pretty well represented, mm. lesbian women less so, and, um, and gay and bisexual men even less so, and then trans, you know, it, it was really quite difficult. And also the relationships that trans people can experience in domestic violence are different. It can be amongst partners, but it can also be amongst other family members as yeah. well. And recognising that as domestic violence yeah. and domestic abuse is, is another factor. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you, you've mentioned the focus groups that you carried out. Can, can you give us a bit of a flavour of, of some of the feedback that, that you got from those? Yeah, so we ran um, different in, um, groups with different uh, cohorts. So we ran groups that were amongst, um, that, we, that we were able to draw from specialist providers, so from workers, frontline workers particularly. We also ran groups with uh, clients and service users, particularly that came from Nextlink. And then we ran some open groups that we were trying to recruit from, from communities for. And they were the most difficult to, to reach into. And particularly men, <laughs> which, you know, it, it, it was an interesting for, for me personally, it was an interesting learning experience that, you know, we were really able to quite well recruit women to the uh, internal groups. For example, I think we had one group of eight um, female um, service users because we ran specific gender groups as well. Yeah. We, we did that consciously. We ran specific groups for um, for women, for men and for trans women, trans men. So we tried really consciously to, to address that. And it was consistent, I think, that the, the, the groups that we that we led with women in, they were able to find entry and ease easier into charity support, into specialist domestic violence and abuse support than the groups with men. So not only was it more difficult to reach men and you know yeah. actually encourage men to take part, but it was also more difficult, I think, generally for men in terms of them recognizing and understanding that DV was happening mm. to them and what DV was mm. and also people didn't even have a language to be able to explain that yeah. you know I mean I know from my own ex lived experience of domestic violence myself that I, I couldn't have articulated it now I can 15 years on yeah. you know 15 years ago I wouldn't wouldn't be able to say the words what now I can yeah and that's you know that's through the work I've been involved with this work you know all those all those factors coming into play and I think for some men particularly the ones that we spoke to in, in focus groups that was you know that was an additional barrier yeah um, assumptions that it wasn't for them yeah. and I think one of the key messages that we really tried to embed within the work with Nextlink was that if I don't see myself reflected in your organization yes. I don't think you're for me yeah. and I think I hope that, um, you know, we, we, we've got that message across that people do need to have, you know, a range of um, representation to mm. be able to think, actually, yeah, that is something I can go and access and get support from. It's about this, 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 the, the picture that we paint of domestic abuse, isn't it? And that whilst for the vast majority of people, their experience will be 
uh, a male perpetrator against uh, a female victim in a heterosexual relationship, because we know statistically that's going to be the majority. That the the issue is is that if we don't also um, paint a picture of domestic abuse in different relationships, then we're not giving people. Um, uh, a, a language or an opportunity in order to say, actually, I can see my relationship reflected there as well. And historically, the the, the, the media depictions, the way we talk about domestic abuse has been that, that very one-sided view of heterosexual domestic abuse. Yeah, absolutely. I think fundamentally, a, a term I'm, I use quite frequently is this concept of heteronormativity, mm. that, you, that only heterosexuality is, in inverted commas, normal and natural, and therefore we don't think about same-sex relationships, for example. We don't think about trans identities. We don't think about the range of different identities that, that will be in the LGBTQ communities. And I took part um, recently in a domestic homicide review, and that um, was a same-sex male couple involved in that. And that was really consistent that although that the victim was presenting to services and there was a clear flag around the possibility of DV being in that relationship, it really wasn't picked up by professionals and that was a consistent, if you like, um, I'll use the word failing, but because that's what the lessons learned what they were trying to gather from the domestic homicide review. And, you know, I think it's almost like um, that we don't see DV in same-sex relationships. I think that's a very, very you know, consistent um, problem that we have to try and overcome. Yeah, so it's not just... Um, victims and survivors of domestic abuse themselves that aren't seeing their relationship depicted in, in the kind of portrayal of domestic abuse, that, but professionals might also um, not, not see it. Uh, they're also not picking up on those, on those signs. So you mentioned that some of what you did was around training and training domestic abuse workers, but, um, but other professionals as well. Could you say a bit more about that part of the project. Yeah, so this was fundamental for us. It was a key component and we, we ended up delivering, I think, around 10 or 12 days of training. And what was really interesting, because we were obviously uh, commissioned through Police and Crime Commissioner, and that was across Haven and Somerset. So we, we, we were really mindful that we tried to reach into different areas. So we did training in Bath and Bristol and South Gloucestershire and down in Somerset, North Somerset. So we wanted to get a, a really kind of broad geographical spread and I think we ended up in almost certainly in high hundred or so I think it was almost 200 participants to wow. that, which was quite a significant amount of, of um, people being trained but what was fascinating although we were marketing the courses for specialists you know DV workers that's who we were trying to, to um, target the training for we ended up having people coming from the police and from you know other support agencies and so it's quite a generally um, audience so we ended up having to write three courses in the okay. end so we, we'd ri written an original course which was very much for specialist DV workers we also um, then tried to write a course that was more general around domestic violence awareness so a kind of more general training course and that then we then delivered that to, for example, um, the LGBT liaison team within the police. And we also did an LGBT communities course around raising awareness of domestic violence and abuse. So we did it that way. 
And then we also realized because of people that were signing up to come on the training and looking at their job descriptions and who, where they were coming from, we ended up having to do kind of basic awareness training around right, domestic sure. violence yeah. for, for those people that were participating. So it ended up being quite complex and quite a challenge. Mm. So we had to basically rewrite the course at least twice to be able yeah. to fit the audience. Um, and that was, you know, we did that on the, on the run, you know, literally we, we had a course that was coming up. We had to change it mm. based on who was coming, but you know, it's great that people were really interested in coming along to that training. And one of the things that was consistent that we kept trying to come up, you know, we kept coming up against was, well, what are the differences? Well, actually, there aren't really that many differences, you know. And I think people almost, and I wonder whether this comes out of a place of a bit of homophobia, biphobia and transphobia, but people were almost, not intentionally, but unintentionally, almost wanting us to say, oh, you know, gay relationships are so different and gay domestic violence right. is so yeah. different and it's different because of X, Y and Z. So I did try and write a paper on that and we used that as a handout to give yeah. to people to talk about things that may be differences, but actually, fundamentally without getting into the nitty-gritty of what DV is now, but fundamentally the differences aren't that great. You know, the same kind of things happen within yeah. LGBT relationships as happen in, in different sex and opposite sex relationships. That's the heteronormative uh, view again though, isn't it? That if it if it doesn't match my heterosexual experience, it must be very, very other. different yeah. and other. Yeah. yeah, and I it reminds me of, um, I said to you that uh, when I was in frontline work setting up an LGBT focus group, because I was... I was struck by how few, uh, we only work with women in that particular service at that particular time, but how few um, lesbian, bisexual, trans women were, were coming into our service. And I remember speaking to um, somebody who worked in the community and safety uh, partnership about uh, awareness raising, LGBT awareness raising, and her saying to me, well, but where do gay people go? I don't know where they go. And this idea that... Um, we might be publicising our service in, in libraries or public places or what have you, but there must be a special place that LGBT people go to um, that must be very different from heterosexual women. And me just being really struck by the kind of naivety of, of, that, uh, of that comment. And indeed, you know, in some cases, you know, some parts of the country, for example, in, in parts of the world you know there'll be an lgbt center there'll be a specialist support space but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right place for someone to go who's the victim of dv mm. you know it could be that actually they need some something very different mm. to what an lgbt space can support you know an offer in terms of support so we were i think in a sense you know i've always said i'm working towards my extinction that's why i do what i do <laughs> you know i don't want them to have to be doing yeah. this work in 20 30 years time well be too old anyway but you know because I think we should be getting to a place where organizations are culturally competent and what I mean by that is that you know an LGBTQ person can come into a, a service and expect to receive the kind of service that that everyone in mainstream society already pro probably does expect mm. Because they will be enough aware enough through processes like training and education that they will be aware enough that um, that there are going to be differences, but those differences aren't great. And actually, at the end of the day, it's about providing a space in which victims can come forward and survivors can come forward and feel safe to be able to talk about all those many mm. factors, all those intersections around their identity that mm. that possibly will be a factor in their DV experience. May or may not be, but it yeah. possibly will be. Yeah. So if organisations are thinking about how do we improve our response then, and I guess there's a couple of things um, that we, we've touched on, yeah, how do they reach out? 
Um, and then once they have done that, how do they create a service which is going to speak to people's experience and, and people feel, yeah, actually that, that's a service for me? What, what, what sorts of um, you know, ideas did you come up with through the project about what, what needed to be different? I think it's a little, a little bit like the sort of um, model of um, kind of visibility of identity, and it's something that I work with in training, where you have like a waterline, and you, you, the things you can see are above the water, and then all the other things about our identity are below the water. In a sense, organisations have to think about that as well for themselves. So you know. You can see people having a stall of pride that's very visible. You can see if they use, I don't know, perhaps a rainbow flag as an image, or if they have in their communications, they thought about it enough to have same-sex relationships reflected in those communications, whether that be on websites, social media, e-newsletter, whatever it is. You know, they've looked at policy and they've put in place monitoring that's, you know, been tested and evaluated and, and people understand why there's monitoring, mm. you know. And then all the things that are underneath, all the hidden things, tend to be about organisational culture. And that's the thing that takes a huge time to shift. Yeah. And that starts through training and education and awareness. But it's a journey that I think as agencies, they have to go on. And it's a long journey. It's not a short, it's not a quick fix. It's not like putting a rainbow flag out. It's not as easy. It's, not as, it's much more different than that. And so we, I think, need to be able to say to communities, because there's two things going on at the same time. One is... You know, communities are over here, kind of away from services, and they don't think the services are for them. At the same time, agencies and services are kind of a distance away, thinking, well, what, why aren't we accessing, you know, why aren't LGBTQ communities accessing mm. our services? And we need to somehow bring those two things together yeah. so that, the, you know, so that there can be a dialogue. And... You know, so we think use things like case studies, for example, where, you know, LGBT people have had really positive experiences of accessing services. And then we've reported on those as stories that then we can we can get those case studies out into communities to see yeah. that the, the, the stories of, the, of people's experiences have been positive. Yeah. So we've done that in a number of ways. You know, we've done it with health and schools and education and hate crime discrimination. And I think that's another way, you know, Short videos, for example, is a really easy way of, of getting messages across to communities. And, you know, one of the things that we learned really early on was how easy it is to recruit LGBT communities through the use of social media. Because LGBTQ right. communities generally tend to be more socially media savvy and using it more. So if you want to get key messages out, use your Twitter account, use your Facebook account, because that way you will engage a little bit more with the communities. And also think about language. And that's a really important factor. So, you know neutralizing around gender using yeah. words like partner you know not making assumption around someone's gender identity you know making use of pronouns so you know perhaps if someone doesn't identify as binary thinking about using they and them pronouns so there's lots and lots of different ways in which yeah. people can learn and there's so many resources out in the world now so many resources online that people can access you know some fantastic films that have been produced by organizations that are thinking about these kind of issues yeah. you know that can be just easily accessed you know it doesn't cost any Anything. Yeah. So yeah, there's it's a it's a culture change within an organisation, yeah. and not just making assumptions that you've got your door open and everyone come through it. And and reciprocal training that can work really well, can't it? So if you've got a local LGBT organisation, you might offer to train them in domestic abuse dynamics and how to respond to disclosures, and, and likewise they might then come in and train you on LGBT. That's exactly like language ways of working. That's exactly what we did. Yeah. So we ran 
um, one of the, of the 10, 12 training courses we ran was specifically for LGBT community groups and it was led by Nextlink. So we, we led most of the LGBT training for the specialists and non-specialist service providers and then Nextlink with our support obviously then led the training that was specifically targeted at the LGBT community and groups. Yeah, because I think another another kind of area that I became aware of um, when I ran this focus group um, was that when people were going to LGBT organisations, they were kind of holding on to that information and trying to support individuals as best as possible, sometimes trying to support both people in that relationship and, um, and not thinking about going out to a domestic abuse service for some specialist input or help or, or what have you. And um, we need to also better equip LGBT professionals to um, manage domestic abuse in a, a really safe way. Absolutely. And when you look at the statistics, you know, I think it's um, one in three, I think, same-sex relationships. There's a, a possibility of domestic violence from people's, um, you know, from research that's been published. So it's not that it's not happening, but mm-hmm. it is. It's, it's, a, it's a high prevalence. Um, but certainly, obviously, because of the very numbers, you know, the percentage of population is obviously a smaller population. You're talking 6 7%, we think, although we don't know from census because they haven't asked the questions yet, but they might do in 2021. But um, certainly, you know, we are talking about sort of lower numbers. But I feel that one of the reasons I was so passionate about this project is that people are just managing it in isolation, and that's not good. Yeah. You know, that, that needs to be changed. Uh, and you, uh, you said to me earlier about your own experiences and like that giving you a real passion for this area of work. I just wondered whether you know, what changes you've seen over the years and in, in how we are responding better. Yeah, I think a couple of things I would say on that. One is my experience with the police. I mean, we are talking historical. It, it was around probably around 18 years ago, I think, when I first made contact with the police around the experience I was having of DV and initially this was on the telephone and I got laughed at and I think that was about not the police at the time police officer at the time involved in that not recognizing perhaps that that DV happens in same-sex relationships particularly amongst two men I think there was something around that and I think there's been a paradigm shift because I think if that if I was to make that phone call today my trust in and have witnessed the, the police change in its culture again change of organizational culture I think they take it so 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 seriously now that that would not be the case I don't think I would get that response anyone would get that response today I think they'd have a much different response I think they'd be much more victim-led but I also think there's been a sea change or there's been a will and a want amongst services to make a difference and I think that's why it was great to work with Nextlink and with Survive and with other local charities to try and um, help them in their thinking organisationally about well what do we need to do differently you know how can we make it more accessible how can we be more LGBT inclusive so I think there's like you're pushing at an open door whereas perhaps historically that wouldn't have been the case and actually I wouldn't have had anywhere to go because if I was being laughed at by the police and as a gay man you know, where do I where do I go for support? Yeah. You know, there wouldn't have been a space for me. I do think that is beginning to change, mm-hmm. and I think that you know that's proved by the fact that, that that local charities, particularly domestic violence agencies, have you know have been able to stand up and say, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, we are open to um, to same sex victims, and, and that includes gay men, yeah. bisexual men. 
Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. It's been really fascinating to talk to you. And the, the, the full kind of report of your project is available online, isn't it? Yeah, you can go onto the Diversity Trust website mm-hmm. and we've got um, all our research reports are on there and, and certainly the um, Improving Access to Domestic Violence Services report is there. Um, and it's also on the NextLink's website as well, so it's, it's all published. Great, thank you. Thank you.